Hey everyone, this is Mike Skinner. I want to welcome you to the sermon podcast for Sweetwater Christian Church. We are glad that you are interested in joining us as we follow Christ. If you'd ever like to support our ministry financially or just learn more about us, head on over to sweetwaterchristian.org. Thanks and God bless. Well, good morning. It's good to see everyone. We are in the middle of a sermon series called Christianese, the stuff Christians say. It's a little ironic because the word Christianese itself is kind of an example of Christianese, a word that would be familiar to Christians, but maybe not so familiar to other people. And, and what we've been looking at are some of the sacred words that we have as Christians from our tradition and from the scriptures that have at times perhaps been misunderstood or misused, or at times we use words so often we get over-familiar with them, and, and we think we know what they mean, but when asked to define them, we have a hard time and we struggle to define them. And at other times, we stop using certain sacred words for certain reasons. This morning, I want to talk about sin. It's everyone's favorite topic. I know you were jazzed this morning, waking up, hoping we'd talk about sin this morning. Sin is one of these Christian topics that in a large part has stopped being talked about. One of the critiques of, like I grew up old school Baptist, and in those churches, one of the critiques of other churches would be they water down sin. They don't talk about sin enough. And there are, in fact, a lot of groups that don't use the word sin as much as perhaps you find it in the scriptures. In fact, I think after 10 years of preaching here at this church, you could probably, I don't think this exists, if you could search the data, you would see perhaps I've used the word sin less and less over the last 10 years. There's a kind of cultural baggage that comes along with sin. We replace sin with some other metaphors. So, you know, for myself, I'll use the word broken a lot or crooked or upside down. And yet sin is a very important part of the Christian faith. It's a very important part of the message that the scriptures give us. What we think about, how we understand sin, affects a lot of things. It it affects how we view God, what we think about God, and it affects what we think about salvation, right? I mean, whatever the problem is, is going to directly affect what you think the solution is. Whatever you think the problem is, is going to direct what you're looking for. That's help. It's going to influence what you think that you need. Sin is one of these words that has such a negative connotation. It can sound judgmental and tolerant and out of touch. At times, it has been used primarily to shame people. This is one of the reasons sin gets touched less in terms of using words. Because we've all been in that situation, or unfortunately some of us on the receiving end of a situation, where the word sin was a warm-up pitch for the real, for the real pitch, which was shame. Which is shame at who you are, the kind of person that you are. And we've all been in those places where sin really seemed to just be another word for a cultural norm. Where playing cards is a sin, and dancing is a sin, and listening to bands like Creed or Nickelback is a sin. I take that one back. This is still true. But we've, we've seen, right, sometimes sin is used for some things you do find in the Bible. God seems to stand against it. And other times, we very easily use it in, in our own kind of ways. When I was a kid in high school, one of the first times I remember really being confronted, like face-to-face, person-to-person about sin, was at the church in Sugarland. I won't mention them, but this is where we went when I was growing up. 
and they had a gym, and I played basketball in that gym. Not very well, but I played. I showed up one day to play basketball, was wearing a, a, a hat, a baseball hat, regular regular hat. And an elder of the church, I didn't know him, just an older man, walked over and berated me. I mean, five solid minutes with a voice raised that it is a sin to wear a hat in the house of God. How dare I disrespect God this way? Take that hat off right now. I wasn't too into church at the time. But even then, you know, it's all I could do. I knew my parents would get on to me not to be like, really, is it the house? Because it looks like a house of basketball right now. I mean, we don't even worship in here, right? There's not the sanctuary. And this is what God's concerned about? God's concerned about our, our, what we put on our head or what we don't put on our head? Um, we've seen sin get used to really just kind of stay in place for things that we prefer or don't prefer, rules that we've made up, extra-biblical kind of things. And yet, sin is very interesting because it's one of these ideas that is almost undebatable in its essence. It's really hard for someone to argue that there's not something wrong with the world. You don't have to be a Christian. You don't even have to be a theist. You don't have to believe in God. To in your own experience and in just your observations of the world around us, be like, something's gone off track. Something's wrong. Something's broken. Something's messed up. And one of the main ways Christians talk about this is, is use this word sin, this concept of sin. I can remember as a child, the first time in my memory that I, I remember really feeling how broken the world was, and then also understanding that I contributed to that brokenness. Um, it was, I was in middle school, and I don't know if you have met middle schoolers or were once one yourself, but at about sixth grade, you reach like peak righteousness. It's a great group of people, super high morals very nice to each other. Um, and, you know, so we had PE and you'd go into the locker room to change before PE and, and, and everyone kind of has their own like self-conscious issues, right? I was just a really skinny kid, so I was just getting changed as fast as possible and getting out. Um, and there was uh, another student in our class um, who was a little bit overweight, nothing crazy. I mean, he was healthy and he's, you know, way fitter than I am today, a little overweight. And for whatever reason, you know how kids are, right? Everyone chose to gang up on him this year, and we'd all be safe from being made fun of because everyone was going to make fun of him, right? For the most part, I stayed out of it. Again, I wasn't in the locker room for very long, in and out as fast as possible. But one day, for whatever reason, I'm in there, and they're kind of ganging up on him, and he kind of snaps and is kind of going back at some other people. And I come up with just the wittiest, meanest thing possible that I could say about this kid and just deliver. And I had never seen, this is what caught me, I had never seen someone's eyes change with hurt until that moment. And I thought I was a pretty nice kid compared to everyone else, and I yet ended that whole situation. Everyone was kind of like, if you've been in this situation, we're like, and the line's been crossed. Okay, let's all leave. Let's all distance ourselves from this situation. And I remember distinctly that afternoon I got home from school and, and had this sense of, like, what had I done? How was he feeling about this? 
And then knowing, you know, the hurt and pain I had felt even as a little kid, knowing that the world is broken. And then really understanding, like, now I was a part of this. I had somehow passed this on. I, I took my place in the brokenness that we have here in the world. And so this morning, I want to try to unpack and look at the concept of sin that we find in the scriptures. I want to kind of try to correct some misunderstandings or maybe some distortions of how we look at sin and, and really try to flesh out a healthier, more robust, more faithful view of sin that we find here in the scriptures. A way for me to explain my experience of sin, a way for us to explain our experiences of sin, and a way for us to, even more importantly, understand and appreciate and praise Jesus for the ways that he has delivered us from sin. So if you would, let me invite you to one of my favorite texts in the Bible. It's found in the book of Genesis. So right early on, Genesis chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's a black hardback underneath a seat around you, and you are more than invited. I have a party planned for us, and you just got the invitation. Genesis 4. I say it's one of my favorite stories, but just be forewarned, right? It's a little macabre. Favorite in terms of interesting. Genesis 4 is, is it's the story we'll read. We'll pick up in, in verse 1 here. This is actually the first time we see the word sin used in the Bible. The English word sin and the Hebrew behind it that's used for sin. It's the first time it shows up in the entire Bible. And I think it plays an important part in helping us understand what it is. Before we read the story, just to catch everyone up, not much has happened yet. God has created the world. There are two humans in particular that we've been thinking about, Adam and Eve. They've been given instructions by God to do certain things and not do particularly one thing. They chose to do that one thing. And they receive some consequences, some punishments because of that decision. And now, chapter 4, verse 1. Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Just feel the beauty in this. This is the first, according to the text, the first birth. This is the first baby. This is the first cry of a newborn. Adam and Eve, they've got a baby boy. Whatever else has happened, the paths that they went down they weren't supposed to, in chapter 4, we have a beautiful moment here. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Cain and Abel, brothers, two baby boys, now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. That was a language I didn't have when I was a sixth grader, but, but I had experienced. I saw someone's face fall. That look in, in someone's eyes when they're hurt, when, 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 when they've been negatively influenced and impacted. Now, we don't know why exactly this happens. If you talk to different pastors and theologians, they'll offer you some theories, but that's really what they are. They're theories. It's speculation. For one reason or another, the older brother doesn't get the same kind of credit, treatment, at least that he was hoping for, and he becomes angry his face falls. 
And before anything happens, God shows up. Verse 6, the Lord said to Cain, Older brother, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? Pay attention to this. We'll come back to it. This is the, the heart of, of this morning. And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. But you must rule over it. Let's finish the story. We'll come back, though. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. This seems to make sense to us. God's informing Cain of some of the consequences of what he's now done. And Cain responds to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you've driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden, and, and I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. This is very interesting. Cain here pegs something central to the heart of humanity, which is violence is cyclical. He has this concept somewhere inside of him that because he has done this to his brother, someone might find him and do it to him. Yet to this day, I don't think humanity has learned this lesson, that there's no such thing as redemptive violence. Violence begets violence, which begets more violence, which begets more violence. Also notice, apparently there are other people Cain's worried about coming into contact with. Up until this point, it was just Adam and Eve and just these two boys. Genesis does not want you to read it like a science textbook explaining the origins of the universe and humankind. And if you pay close enough attention like this, it gives you breadcrumbs to try to teach you that. But watch God's response. It's very interesting. I mean, I'm not sure we'd write the story this way. Cain, you know, doesn't surprise us he would complain like this. Then the Lord said to him, not so. It's very emphatic in Hebrew. This will not happen. Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. God says, I'll stand up for you. In fact, we keep reading, and the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. He put an off-limits sign. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden, which, by the way, is a beautiful metaphor for where we live after after the fall, east of Eden. This is where we find our residence right now. Cain knew his wife. She conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. Notice now civilization, city, the the world starting to develop here. To Enoch was born Irad, and to Irad... He fathered, and then eventually Lamech. I got a master's degree just so I could do that. Verse 19, and Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Adah, and the name of the other was Zillah. Adah bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. So industry, agriculture is being built. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. Culture, art, music is being built. Civilization is growing here. Zillah also bore Tubal Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. Technology is starting to develop. 
the sister of Tubal Cain, was Namah. Lamech said to his wives, he writes a poem for him, he sings him a song. Adah and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. The story of Cain ends properly with the person and story of Lamech. This is the outcome of Cain's violence, is Lamech's uber-violence. Lamech takes what was a promise from God to protect Cain. If anyone touches you, I'll, I'll go back seven times. And he turns it around into his own personal threat. Remember how Cain was protected by seven times? You look at me the wrong way, 70 times 70 times. I'll go at you. Lamech is the father of this unending violence humanity seems to experience. Do you remember Jesus once uses this number, 70 times 7? He's asked for a number, how many times should we forgive someone? That's not a random number he pulls. He, he's, he's, he's pulling a Lamech here. Jesus is saying, in the kingdom of God, we don't take vengeance 70 times 7. We forgive 70 times 7. In a profound way, Jesus is... The anti-Lamech, he's the one who's come to undo Lamech, to create a new society of people who do not father in the, the footsteps of Lamech. But for now, let's go back to verse 7. We're introduced to sin. Notice the language used here. It's so very fascinating. If you do not do well, the Lord's warning him. Sin is crouching at the door. So it's like a predator here, right? It's, it's waiting for you to open one small crack so it can pounce. It's crouching at the door. It's desirous for you. It's lusting after the opportunity to get you. And he says, your task is to rule over it. Do not let it do this. We know Cain is unable to do that. The sin sees the door open and pounces. Cain commits murder, fratricide, kills his own brother. All right at the very beginning of creation. From, from the start, things start looking bad and bad and bad and bad if you read the narrative. Sin here is personalized when we're first introduced to the concept of sin. It's not with Adam and Eve. It's with Cain. And it, it seems to be a concept that's personalized, an enemy, a hostile power. What you find is, in fact, in the scriptures, um, so the ESV Bible that most of us are reading from this morning, if you were to, to do a search, you'd find the English word sin will show up around 700 times. But there is not, in fact, one Hebrew word or Greek word, which are the two primary languages the Bible is written in, that means sin. There are, however, a, a good handful number of words in Hebrew and Greek that metaphorically means sin and are translated into English as sin pretty regularly. This Hebrew one that we encounter, the first one in the Bible here in Genesis 4, is one of the more common ones in the Old Testament. When you see the word sin in English, it's often the same word we're seeing here in Genesis 4. And its real meaning is taken from the world of archery. It means to miss. To miss the mark. To miss the bullseye. 
If you grew up in a Christian household, in a Christian school, in a Christian environment, you might be familiar with a definition like this. What is sin? Sin is technically missing the mark. In fact, in the New Testament, the primary word for sin also has a background in archery. It means to miss. The arrow doesn't hit the bullseye. It misses the mark. But there are, like I said, a handful of other metaphors that all get translated as sin, that all express the same type of concept. And I think understanding those other metaphors helps us more fully flesh out the idea of what sin is and its consequences and what Jesus saves us from when he saves us from it. And it helps us from being reductionistic with this missing the mark definition. So, a lot of people, traditional view would be this. If you want to know what sin is, sin means missing the mark. It's an action that disobeys one of God's laws or it goes against God's will for your life. But you're making assumptions there. The first assumption you're making is that you know what the mark is, that you know what the bullseye is. If sin is missing the bullseye, why do we assume the bullseye is a law or some, like, perfection inside of God's character? Is that truly God's ultimate goal for human beings? Is that why he created human beings? Was that the bullseye of creation? Do you create people who can behave in such a way that they get the correct legal status, that they can follow the correct rules? I would suggest perhaps not. Perhaps a better way to understand creation is that human beings were created for union with God. We were created to grow in love and in closer relationship to God. I would also suggest that's true from the very beginning. Adam and Eve aren't created perfect. The text says good. Some early church fathers imagined them as infants to try to get this idea across. Humanity was always meant, even without sin or the fall, was meant to grow in love and union towards God. There was always an arc to the story, from creation to glory. Now, because humans detoured, we have to be restored from that fall. But one thing Christians sometimes succumb to is the temptation to make that story, the story of the fall to redemption, more important than the larger story of creation to glory. What if the mark is not legalism? rule following? What if the mark is union with God? How does that perhaps change how we would then think about sin? Or perhaps we could think of some of the other metaphors used to describe sin. Here are just a few. In the scripture, sin is presented with words that really mean, they're metaphorically presented as sin, but they mean crooked or perverse. Sometimes sin is verbalized as evil or violence. Sometimes sin It's presented as a stain, something that stains us, something that makes us dirty. Oftentimes, particularly in the Old Testament, one of the the common ways sin is, is metaphorized for us is as a burden or a weight. To sin is to place a burden on someone or to have a burden or weight placed on you. Sin is sometimes metaphorized as trespass or to cross a line or boundary. It definitely, at times, is to be lawless, to break a rule, law. Sin is seen as something that's impure. 
and sin, particularly in the New Testament, and then even here in the very first place we find it, is seen as something that enslaves us or holds us captive, personified as a hostile power, as an enemy. I think it's more comfortable, though, to reduce the idea of sin to simply breaking a rule. I think there are two reasons for this. Um, The first is that it can make, for some of us, sin a little bit easier to manage. I've never been great at following rules. Some of you are. And some of you, all you really need is a checklist, right? A list of rules. And you can check them off, and you can be good to go. Sin, though, is more than just doing the right things, not breaking the laws. Jesus gets at this in the Sermon on the Mount. I don't know if you remember this exchange Jesus has in this real famous sermon he gives, right? He says, you've never murdered anybody. Impressive. I know you're in lost. It is impressive. He says, but have you, have you hated them? And you're like, whoa, 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 I didn't, I didn't break a law. He goes, you've never committed adultery on your wife. Here's your gold star. But are you a lustful person? Jesus seems to think that our character, sin, it goes even down to intentions, desires. We know this. You can do the right thing for the wrong reason. For some of us, it's actually easier for us to just think of sin as breaking rules. It, it, it helps us manage ourselves. We don't have to think as hard or be as convicted. And then another problem we have if sin is just rule-breaking is that it makes it really confusing when the Bible's not clear on an issue, when there's not a clear law or God's will is not clearly illustrated about one thing or another. Then it becomes really hard. What, is, what am I supposed to do here? What, is this a sin or is this not a sin? It's not talked about in the Bible. So I got hired this summer to work at a sex camp. And as I, was, as I say that, I should explain, I guess. <laughs> There's a summer camp for kids who have completed eighth grade that functions as like a Christian sex ed summer camp for them. And the same group, I keynoted a different camp for them last summer. And apparently they were like, this guy needs to be entrusted with more responsibility. And so they asked me to come and work at this camp. So I'll be there this summer. And just from previous work with children and from just guessing what's coming up, here's a question that will be talked about at sex camp. How far is too far? Most Christians are going to tell you there's a line, and if you cross it, you've broken a rule. But then there's all these legal loopholes. Depends on how good of a lawyer you've got. These gray areas. Sin, just as rule-breaking, creates some problems, creates some gray areas. I want to flesh out with you, from the many metaphors of sin we get in the Scriptures, a couple key ideas, I think, that will help us more faithfully understand sin and thus more faithfully appreciate Jesus' salvation for us from sin. Okay? The first one is this. I think we should see sin more relationally and not just legally. This is number one. Sin more relationally. It's more of a relational thing and not just a legal thing. Notice I said just. It is a legal thing. It is about breaking rules. There's no doubt that 
that, that sin at times is God told you to do this. God's law was this. God's will was this. And you did the other thing. You went the other way. But I think it goes much further than that. I think sin has to be situated between two truths. The first, you were created in the image of God. The second, you were destined for life with God. And sin is something that affects that relationship. Sin is something that alters that arc, that trajectory. Sin is not an impersonal crime. Sin is relational in this way. It's, it's more like betraying a friend or cheating on a loved one or a business partner. It affects the goal of your creation. It affects your union, closeness with the creator. And it affects the community around you. It affects the relationships that you have with one another. It breaks community, not just with God, but with others. Now, sometimes evangelicals have a hard time really grasping that second part of it. That sin is something that's not individualized. We're very individualistic in our culture. And in the scriptures, both in the Old and the New Testament, sin is seen as something that affects not just the person who does it, but also a lot of other people around them. Sometimes we're told sin goes down through generations. You can have a grandson or a great-grandson who's somehow touched by this. Sometimes we're told a whole nation or society can be touched by this. In the New Testament, a whole church can be hurt by one person's individual sin. We like to imagine that if we were by ourselves at home doing something sinful in private, that it only affects us, maybe our relationship with God, but it, it wouldn't ever affect anyone else in the world. The truth is, Scripture portrays humanity as much more connected than that. It portrays sin as much more pervasive and intricate than that. And that when one person experiences or falls into sin, it almost inevitably will have a greater effect upon their family, upon their community, perhaps among even larger communities that they belong to. So when you lie about something that's not very important at your workplace, you think, that doesn't affect my child. And yet, what happens in your heart, the trajectory your character goes on in that moment, in one way or another, might actually have a big impact sooner or later on your child. It might affect your church. It might affect your organization. Sin has consequences. One way we can talk about sin is that sin always goes farther than we want it to go and always does more than we thought we gave it permission to do. But it's more than just a legal thing. It's a relational thing. And if it's relational, that means... Salvation has to be more than having a deed expunged from our record. If sin was just breaking the rules, then all we really need is like forgiveness, a legal, a legal action on the part of the judge to put this off of our, our record. But if sin is relational and not just legal, then what we need is more than that, reconciliation. We need our relationship with God to be restored. We need a path to be made back. We need our relationships with one another to be restored. We need to be given paths to 
recreate and cultivate our relationships with one another as we continue to fall, as we continue to sin, as we continue to forgive and continue to grow. This is one way I think we can think more faithfully about sin, relationally, not just legally. The second one is this. Sin is destructive, not just arbitrary. This is, I think, a huge one. Cain's story is a perfect example of this. The way sin is presented in here, it's personified as this hunter. Sin here is like a seek and destroy missile. It's desire is for Cain. It's locked and loaded. And it's waiting for that door to crack so they can do more than Cain could ever imagine it would do. Sin is far more insidious than breaking a rule. It's far more dangerous and fatal. It's a shame when we think about sin as if we're breaking an arbitrary law, like, let's say, a federal law, like, like the speed limit. Now, I follow the speed limit, right, all the time. There are no records that would ever contradict that. But I've seen some of you drive, and let's just say, Perhaps you've broken the speed limit. And here's the deal. I don't think you feel too guilty about it. I definitely don't think you feel like you've offended someone in the government. You don't need to write an apology letter to Congress. It's, it's kind of an arbitrary number. Now, it, it can lead to someone being hurt, but you could go under the speed limit and also make a mistake. Also have an accident happen, someone be hurt. If it's just a matter of driving from A to B, no one else is around, and you happen to hit a different number than another number someone else had chosen, you just broke an arbitrary rule. No one was hurt. But sin is not like that. Sin is destructive by nature. I think this is part of the reason Paul uses the, the word wage to talk about what happens from sin. It's the payoff. It's the natural, it's the inherent result from sin. The negative consequences from sin are not just arbitrarily put on you by God. They're birthed out of the deed itself. I mean, they're connected much more than we might imagine. I would say sin is much more like an addiction than, than anything else. Like if, if we were, like the biblical authors, using metaphors to try to illustrate what sin is, this is the one I would go to. Go to. This would be my go-to metaphor. Sin's like an addiction. It's a self-destructive behavior. It hurts us. And even when we know it hurts us, we still do it. Because it's also kind of addictive. And sin is like this too. And the longer we do a certain type of thing, the more disposed we are to do that type of thing, and the harder it is to do that type of thing. I go to therapy to deal with things I started doing as a kid. Because this is how sin works. And I would say, even like sin, it can really only be understood looking backwards. Here's, if you've worked with addicts or, or, or have gone through that process yourself or are currently struggling with that, one of the things you'll find is that often it's only the person who is sober who really understands what was going wrong when they were drinking too much, to use alcoholism. They could have told you, I drink too much beforehand, right? But it's not until their mind's clear that they look back and they understand, oh, I was drinking too much. It was doing this. 
and it was doing that. And it was damaging in all of these ways I never could have imagined. Christian theologians from the very beginning have actually expressed ideas like this about sin and repentance. That you can only truly repent after you have faith. Like you can say, I'm a sinner, and you're right, but it's not until you've been saved that you really, with clearer, freer eyes, can look back and go, oh, wow. It was that. It was that bad. It was that harmful. It was that destructive. Sin is, is destructive. We often are scared of God punishing us and maybe less scared of our own sin, hurting ourselves and the ones that we love. God's the one who created life. Jesus is the one who comes to give life. Sin inherently takes it away, destroys life. And if that's the case, then what we need is not just forgiveness. An addict does need to be forgiven. But forgiveness by itself does no good almost for an addict. What does an addict need? Transformation. They need freedom. And in fact, the scriptures say that salvation is all about freedom. This is one of their big metaphors they use to talk about being saved, is being freed. The sin that once held you captive no longer has the same power over you. The very last one, as we wrap up, sin is systemic and structural and not just personal. This is one that, in a weird way for me, seems to be controversial to some. The idea that sin can be more than just something one person does and happens to one person, but that instead sinful things can be built into organizations or built into societies or built into cultures or built into nations. But you find this all throughout the scriptures where you have language like a whole nation needs to repent. You find this in the New Testament when Paul uses language like the principalities and powers. Paul imagines that there are things that are superhuman. They're made up of human people and decisions, but they end up also exercising control and influencing humans and human decisions in negative ways. Racism, I think, is one of our clearest examples of this. You don't have to be an inherently racist person with racist intentions to live in a world and benefit from things that were built by people who were racist with racist intentions, which had racist results. There's going to be a system that has racism attached to it. And without your intentional attempt at being racist, you might actually perpetuate that system. You might find some complicity in going along with that system without calling it out or trying to reform it. I think many of us understand this intuitively, even if we might not always agree with it on paper. We understand that sometimes a company needs to have a demon exercised. Right? Like there are bosses that that made those decisions. There are people and there were decisions, but then somehow they became larger than those people and those decisions. And now it like, controls this weird influence on the whole company. And this happens in communities and cultures. And this happens in nations. And many of us wake up in the morning, sometimes saddened and frustrated, looking around and thinking, perhaps we live in a society that has a few demons that need to be kicked out. Perhaps 
perhaps more has to be done if we want to see healing and wholeness than just individually fixing ourselves. Maybe we have to look at bigger solutions, sometimes harder solutions. System Sin becomes intertwined with cultures and systems and organizations. I think the Cain to Lamech story is a great illustration of this. These metaphors, this robust understanding of sin, in my own life, it's helped me to put words to my experiences. It helps me understand what happens when I sin and when I struggle with sin. It helps me understand what happened that day in the locker room. It also helps me understand when I've been sinned against. I guarantee you, there are some of us in this room right now who feel like we've got a burden on us. There's a weight on us. Or who feel like there's some kind of stain on me. Something dirty about me. Or who feel like I'm just guilty or wrong. I'm just broken the, the law. Or who feel like I'm trapped. I can't stop. I'm a slave. And we might not ever peg the word sin there. But these are all the ways that Scripture tries to get you into this concept. And even more important than helping us express and put words to our own experiences this is a way that I think a, a more faithful understanding of sin helps us appreciate what God in Christ has done for us. God in Christ has forgiven us of our sins. God in Christ has reconciled us both to God and created the opportunity to be reconciled to others. God in Christ has freed us from sin. God in Christ has offered transformation. God in Christ is reforming structures, is building a new kingdom defined by peace, and wholeness. And you and I are invited into that. In a moment, like every Sunday, we'll come and celebrate these truths. We'll come to the table. You know who the table is for? The table is for people who have a stain or who put a stain on someone. The table is for someone who's weighed down or who put a weight on somebody else. The table is for someone who broke that rule the table's for you and the table's for me. And the praise is for God.